Take your Bibles as we go again to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17. In an article titled The Politics of Incivility, author Ted Lindbergh writes, Incivility is nothing new in American politics. The article continues, Incivility has a long pedigree in American political discourse. Consider the warning the Connecticut Current issued about the consequences of a Thomas Jefferson victory in the presidential election of 1800. This is what they were predicting of his presidency, warning not to vote for him. This paper wrote, murder, robbery, adultery, and other horrible crimes will be openly taught and practiced. And they concluded the soil will be soaked with blood. You think that's a little bit of an overstatement? Lindbergh continues, it may be that incivility in politics has a cyclical character, perhaps associated with times when the contending parties feel the stakes are especially high, as they seem to feel now. No doubt the sorting of politically active Americans into parties that have grown much more homogenous than they were in the mid-20th century has been a contributor to incivility as people encounter fewer fellow partisans with significantly different positions on issues. Moreover, the ubiquity of cell phone cameras and the profusion of social media mean that rude, nasty politics is dragged into our homes and into our daily lives with or without our consent. And he concludes, again, the tone of politics might be no rougher than in past eras. But we simply are exposed to more of it. Americans themselves believe that incivility is on the rise. When do you think that article was written? It was more than a decade ago. And we feel that probably more acutely today that this is true than we ever have before. It's extremely common and accepted that we can say whatever we'd like to say, post whatever we'd like to post, tweet whatever we'd like to about those with whom we disagree today. I think that's grown especially true of us over the last several years as differences of opinions have multiplied over current events. We say and tweet and post these things even over those who are in authority over us. We live in a day where incivility reigns. Where people who disagree with me are my enemy. We justify ourselves speaking out against whomever we find that disagrees with us. But this letter and this text that we'll look at this morning directly addresses our view of our authorities, our civil authorities. How do you naturally tend to view authority? If you are like the rest of humanity, our natural bent is to view our authorities, no matter who they are, with some level of suspicion and distrust. If you think, well, I'm really kind of a compliant person, let's remember how this story of sin entered into the world in this idea of authority. Consider how Eve viewed her absolutely perfect authority. 
God provided everything, absolutely everything for them. And he says it's all good. He gives them permission to partake of virtually everything in the garden. He gives them one, just one, no. And yet Adam and Eve believed the lie of the serpent that God was misusing and hoarding his authority against them and against their good. And they justified disobedience because God was not using his authority for their good. Humans have had a terrible, sinful relationship with authority from the beginning. It is in our nature. But even more, how are you thinking and feeling about the authorities in your life that certainly do not live up to God's moral standard? That's the question that Peter's addressing. Not just authority in general, but ungodly authorities. How are God's people, how are God's people supposed to think, feel, and act toward those authorities that support and encourage evil to grow and thrive in our world? That's the question this text is asking. And Peter will answer very clearly. God commands his people to submit to civil authority for the Lord's sake. Those last three words are vitally important. So let's look at our text this morning. First Peter chapter 2, we'll go back and begin reading in verse 11. First Peter 2, verse 11, let's hear carefully the very words of God that he speaks to us this morning. Verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and he's saying they will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How you live will reflect on your God. How you live will impact those who don't know Christ. They can be a witnessing tool for you. And then in verse 13, the New King James adds this word, therefore. And I think that's right. So let's keep that in mind. Therefore, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be the emperor as supreme. Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. So that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live or act or submit as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's ask for his help as we look at this text together. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to hear this passage. It is inherently difficult for us. In our natures, we don't want to give in. In our own sinful pride, we think we know best. And when we live in a world that is hostile to Christianity, we have very good reasons to distrust our authorities. And yet this word tells us to submit and obey. Help us to do and believe and think and feel this word after you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now remember, Peter's readers were this tiny minority in the Roman Empire. They felt the oppression and fear that comes from living as those that are held in contempt for their beliefs within a corrupt and godless society. And we likely are tempted in the same way by our passions to respond in three negative ways or sinful ways when we find ourselves in a hostile culture that's becoming more and more opposed to our beliefs. One of three ways. Perhaps we fight. We can tend to view those opposed to our values as our enemy. And we know we're not supposed to embrace that mindset, but that's kind of how we feel. We need to get our view out there. We need to be aggressive and put the truth out there. We can even seek to spread the gospel of our values. And in recent days, I've seen some that are more passionate about changing our culture as Christians than they are about following Christ as the king of the world to come. We set our hope in political change and fight for it rather than remembering that our role in this world is not primarily to see social and political change. That's not going to happen in this life. That doesn't mean we're inactive, but that's not the priority. Secondly, sometimes we flee from society. We can withdraw and pursue only Christian community because it's safer, because then we don't have to incite opposition. But then our withdrawal from the world mutes our opportunity to demonstrate the power of Christ to change our lives. Or third, we conform. We just don't like being strangers and exiles. And so we do as much as we can to minimize that unusual identity. We just blend in. We fit in. We keep our unpopular opinions and the beliefs of God's word to ourselves. We claim that our freedom in Christ means that we are at liberty to behave like the world behaves. We become more interested in demonstrating reasonableness according to the standards of our age than in demonstrating holiness that comes from following Christ. What I want you to understand, and maybe you picked this up as we read, is that this is a difficult passage. It's uniquely challenging because it's radical and it's countercultural. It cuts against the grain of our natural response. It's challenging for us to read. It's challenging for me to preach. It's challenging for believers to obey. It's even contrary to much current Christian conversation because Peter here is very actively, very clearly telling us to submit to ungodly authorities. In this section of the letter, and he's going to give several other examples, he's going to focus only on one side of our relationships with authority. He's going to admit that people are treated unjustly and he still calls us to submit anyway. Peter calls us to good works from the vantage point of the one most likely to be mistreated. And we feel it. And we say, that's not fair. But Peter's saying, that's not the point. He's not intending to write a full explanation of the responsibilities of both parties involved in relationships like this. In a culture obsessed with seeking justice from our own perspective, this passage is hard to hear. 
but Peter and ultimately the Spirit of God himself urge us to hear these words and obey. So my responsibility this morning is to preach and yours is to understand this passage in its context with something like this in mind. Imagine that Peter the Apostle himself were somehow sitting in this room amongst us. Our goal, my goal is to preach so that he would say, yes, that's exactly what I said. That's exactly what I meant with those words. And you hear it that way as well. That's our goal as we work at understanding God's word. This morning, we'll consider together first the command, the motive, the purpose, the foundation, and then the application of submission. First, the command of submission. Verse 13 begins immediately with this command. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In the New King James, the verse begins, therefore, submit yourselves. What Peter commands here is rooted in verses 11 and 12. As we read, to submit or be subject, it's a military term. It means to arrange yourself under a commander or a leader. The passage is proactively teaching civil obedience. It doesn't give the exceptions we want to hear. It doesn't give us loopholes. It doesn't tell us how to practice civil disobedience. It says practice civil obedience obedience now this is intentional by peter like again adam and eve we look for loopholes but peter fully anticipates that these believers will face unfair unjust treatment and he's exhorting them to follow christ's example in obedience in spite of it and what's encouraging as we go through the text is he's going to tell us why he's going to give us reasons notice that in this verse Peter says that we are to voluntarily, that's a hard word, isn't it? Voluntarily submit ourselves to every human authority. Now we need to understand what he means by this phrase, these two words, human institution. That's not actually the most literal translation. The Greek word underneath of it talks about a creature. He's saying that, that he's, we're to submit to every human creature. And then verses 13 and 14 go on to tell us what kind of humans or which, which humans we're supposed to be subject to. And he says both the supreme ruler of the land and all those he places underneath of him. Peter is doing something here. He's doing two things. He's both implying that these authorities are not the ultimate authority and that these rulers are merely humans. Now that's important in this passage because many in this culture were being taught that the emperor was a god and deserved to be worshipped. And Peter is subtly arguing against that belief while still encouraging submission to that human authority. It's actually very careful and very wise. Peter's not getting into a discussion about what type of government is good. Here he says, obey an emperor who believes he's a god. There's no discussion of what government is best. He's saying be subject. John MacArthur in his commentary on this text writes, Although Peter and Paul both lived in the openly sinful, decadent Roman Empire, a society infamous for evil, which included immorality, infanticide, government corruption, abuse of women, and violence, neither apostle offered any exemption 
by which believers were free to defy civil authority. Jesus himself commanded, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. That doesn't mean that's always perfectly clear. But it does give us the general direction and demeanor of our lives. Instead of being preoccupied with political and social reform, Christ himself always focused on matters pertaining to his kingdom. The Bible does at times provide us with examples of God's people interacting with civil authorities and responding with respect, responding to those authorities and their wrong decrees in a godly way. Remember, Peter and James, Peter himself is arrested and beaten for preaching about Jesus in Jerusalem. And after the leaders warn them not to continue preaching Christ, they conclude they must obey God rather than men. Daniel graciously and wisely requests that he's not required to follow the king's edict to eat the meat that's offered. He also rejects the command given not to pray to any other god but the king. The Hebrew women back in the book of Genesis and Exodus, they refused to obey Pharaoh's command in Egypt to drown the baby Moses in the river. The Bible provides us with examples that demonstrate that God is the ultimate authority. Yet here, Peter, Peter is teaching us to obey our government leaders. It means God has called us today to willingly and consistently submit to government officials at the national, the state, and local levels. We're to pay our taxes, even when we think they're unfair, even if we know they're unfair, even if some of those funds go to places that we would never support. We're to follow the speed limit, even when we think it's inconvenient. We're to speak respectfully of our president and other government officials, even when we disagree vehemently with their positions and decisions. Why? Why? Because secondly, we're given a motive for submission. Believers are subject to human authorities for the Lord's sake. For his sake. Notice how often Peter makes sure we have God in view as the ultimate authority in the text. Just note, scan back over our text, verses 13 through 17, and see where God's name is explicitly mentioned. It makes it very clear that we're actually not submitting ultimately to human authorities, but to God himself. Rebellious conduct by a Christian brings dishonor on Christ. And even the most oppressive governments hold evil in check to some extent, preventing society from collapsing into complete anarchy. We're to remember there's no perfect government until Christ establishes his rule over all people. So one pastor notes, Christians do not submit to human institutions simply because they feel like it, or because they have compliant personalities, or because the institutions have coercive powers. We do not first look at ourselves to see if we feel like doing nor do we look first at the institution to see if there are consequences for not submitting. We look first to God. We consult God about the institution and we submit for his sake. Third, we see the purpose for this submission. Peter points out 
our perspective of submitting to authority in a Godward direction for this, he says in verse 15. What is the this pointing to? Let's supply what he means. For this, or being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, is the will of God. Again, notice how strong, how straightforward Peter is stating this. This is clearly God's idea and plan for us, even when we have a hard time understanding why he may continue to allow an evil leader to remain in power. We think so much better would be done if this man was removed. But that's not up to us. Peter's saying submit anyway, and that's why this is a challenging passage to us. That doesn't mean we have to agree, and we certainly are free in this country to vote against that leader as soon as we can. But we're still to pray for them. We're still to submit to them. He continues in verse 15, this is the will of God, so that by doing good, you should put to silence or shut the mouths of the ignorance of foolish people. This is why Peter gives this command without exceptions. He's concerned that these believers clearly demonstrates what it looks like to be made new. He wants them to silence the critics and avoid unnecessary accusations against the gospel. In fact, a godly, gracious response can vividly demonstrate and point to God's power to change a believer's outlook on injustice. It can change his speech about sinful human rulers. And ultimately, it can change his view of what is really most important in this world. Otherwise, what's happening? If we join the common chorus complaining about our leaders, what's different about us? J.I. Packer wrote, It is a paradox of the Christian life that the more profoundly one is concerned about heaven, the more deeply one cares about God's will being done on earth. So believers should be seen doing good in their community. They're to overflow in good works, Peter would tell us. This verse indicates that these are not just private deeds, but actions that the unbelieving community around us can see. We will face unfair, ignorant criticisms if we're living a godly Christian life. We can count on it, Peter says. These first century believers did. Biblical values are seen as repressive, outdated, unloving, and just plain wrong. To believe today that homosexuality, adultery, and premarital sex is sinfully dangerous and less than God's best for people is considered complete nonsense. To teach that God is the creator of this world is considered woefully ignorant of modern science. People think that's just stupid. To understand that God's word teaches that the life of an unborn infant is precious in the eyes of God is actually, in their minds, being unkind to a mother's choices. The brilliant economist and public thinker Thomas Sowell once said, you can't stop people from saying bad things about you. All you can do is live in such a way that you make them liars. That's what Peter's saying here. Appropriate civil obedience will silence foolish accusations. An author wisely states, God has chosen to reveal his character to oppressors 
through our good conduct in the midst of oppression. Hear that again. That's a good summary of what's coming in this next section of verses. God has chosen to reveal his character to oppressors through our good conduct in the midst of oppression. When we lean into those natural responses, when we fight, flee, or conform, we remove our opportunity to demonstrate the difference Christ makes in our lives. I want you to consider the rulers that Peter lived under in his lifetime. Peter was likely a young boy when Herod the Great ruled. This wicked and suspicious ruler ordered the death of every Jewish male child under the age of two around the time of Jesus' birth. Peter then lived through the kingship of Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist for speaking out against his adulteries. This was the same man who ridiculed Jesus at his trial in his court. Peter lived under the rule of Pontius Pilate, that weak ruler who was manipulated by the Jewish's mob lust for blood. Peter lived in Jerusalem under Herod Agrippa, who killed one of his best friends, James, and arrested Peter unjustly. Only that supernatural miracle allowed him to escape from prison. And now Peter is writing at the time of Nero, who is known to be infamously wicked in the annals of history. This man became an emperor at the age of 17. And just one year after he began his rule, in 55 AD, out of jealousy and suspicion, he murdered his own stepbrother. Just four years later, he would murder his own mother. In 62 AD, he had his wife executed. This was a paranoid person. In AD 64, fire broke out in Rome, and he most likely set the blaze himself. But he blamed Christians because they were the nearest scapegoat. They weren't favored well in society, so let's blame them. And in punishing them and persecuting them, he would wrap them in animal skins and have his dogs attack them and tear them to pieces. Or he would set them on fire after he had dipped them in oil. And finally, in AD 68, he killed himself after being disgraced and deposed at the age of 31. Now, why share all these details with you? Because Peter's not naive about political tyranny, about corruption, evil, and justice. You can't say, if he only knew what our leaders were like, he didn't live in a Christian nation, and neither do we. And yet, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he intends to encourage us to embrace the perspective of Christ and live in a God-honoring way in spite of oppression. Our God has sovereignly set in authority the leaders we have right now. It's not our place to understand why God does what he does. We can't figure that out. At times in our history, we've said, why would you put that person in charge. But we honor and revere God by submitting to rulers when it's difficult to do so. This reveals his supernatural power. Number four, the foundation of submission in verse 16. This foundation is our attitude, our perspective that Peter's been giving us. We're to come right back to our identity. This Godward perspective, he says, live as people who are free. The word live in your ESV is supplied. 
by the translator, as is the word living later in the verse. The New American Standard translates this as act, as free men. Again, that's a supplied verb. The New Living Translation, I think this does well. It says, for you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. What's happening here is that this verse in the Greek doesn't have a verb. Because we're intended to carry forward this idea of submission. So my opinion would be that we should go actually right back to the verb controlling all of this that we saw in verse 13, where we should read this as submit as free men. Be subject with the understanding that you're free. And here's the focus of this text. Believers cannot believe, act, and speak as though they believe that what unbelievers around them need most is a better government or a better leader. And sometimes the way we speak and act and we're preoccupied with the things of this culture, that's what we're communicating. We cannot act as though our first priority is to change society. That's betraying that we don't understand how God changes the human heart. They're to be consistently focused on demonstrating the difference that Jesus makes in human lives. So do your interactions with those with whom you disagree or even agree politically demonstrate that you're distracted from your true identity as one of Christ's own people? Have you lost sight of the mission because all that's happening right in front of your face is distracting? It feels important and it is important, but it's not what's most important. How much of your social media interactions reflect gospel priorities above all and godly submission to authorities that at times we must not agree with? If an unbeliever watched your page, would they be convinced this is someone who is in love with God first and foremost? If we could collect all of your public comments on societal issues, what would they show about your hope in God? Are you given over to worry or fear about all that is changing in our nation as if somehow God is unaware or unconcerned, uninvolved or passive? Daniel said this to a very pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel 2, 37 and 38. And listen to how carefully Daniel is recognizing who's really in control. He says, you, O king, the king over all kings on the earth right now is what he's saying, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he, the God of heaven, has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all. He's saying God's in charge of your rule. Remember that, O king. A few verses earlier, he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons he removes kings and sets up kings. Rest in the fact that God knows what he's doing. Don't believe the lie of your heart that says this isn't good or right or fair. That doesn't mean we don't have avenues that we can work for change. But that cannot, that should not be our preoccupation. Notice that Peter says we're to understand and submit in this verse as servants of God. Again, that Godward perspective. 
while we're submitting to government authorities, we're completely to arrange our lives as servants of God. Finally, the application of submission. Peter concludes this section by giving four very practical summary commands. He stacks four commands, imperatives, one right on top of the other that really summarizes where we've been. He says, honor everyone, every human, as he said in the first section, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And considering this first command to honor everyone, does your conversation surrounding politics, even comments promoting values you rightly condemn as unbiblical, obey this command? Is your speech recognizing that you honor other people that disagree with you even? Very popular today to treat opponents with incivility and hostility. But God's people are called to obey this command when we disagree with others. Whether you're a fan of Fox News or MSNBC, calling a political opponent a fool or an idiot is incredibly common, isn't it? But we're not to fall into that stream of our culture. Our God commands us to honor, to respect everyone. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them. But does this passage, you look at it carefully. You answer the question. Does it condone belittling, demeaning, calling names, attacking those of a different viewpoint? Have you forgotten that they are made in the image of God? A sinner who needs Christ above all things. Do you not understand that their values are shaped by what they love? And if they don't love God, why would they share your values? The greatest need is heart change. So how might we apply this passage in a way that demonstrates we know Christ and are being changed by him? Is what your neighbors know about you is that you're this party or that one? Or do they know that you're loyal to King Jesus first? And I encourage you to avoid feeding your mind and heart hours and hours of that kind of content. Secondly, we're to love the brotherhood. Notice the familiar, familial language that Peter uses again. We demonstrate the difference the gospel is making in our lives by our allegiance, our love toward one another. In an area of life where disagreement is the norm, God's people demonstrate the difference Christ makes in our relationship. Notice that's, that's, that's another level than just honoring everyone. Thirdly, we're to fear God. We're not to fear men. We're not to fear our government officials. But God is to receive reverence. This goes back to what we saw in chapter 1. He alone is our true king. But lastly, Peter concludes this section with the very same command that he began it with. It's the beginning and the end. He says, honor the emperor. Show him proper respect as fits his position since we know God himself put him there. So remember, this passage is an application of what we saw in verses 11 and 12. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, remember who you're, you are. You're free. You're made for another world, another life. Abstain from the passions of your flesh. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. 
This is a hard passage for us. It's hard for me because it seems like we're setting ourselves to, up to be overwhelmed by wave after wave of corruption and injustice at the hands of our authorities. And Peter never tells us how to fight that injustice. And in a sense, that's absolutely what Peter is doing. All leaders are human and sinful at best. But consider now Jesus Christ and how he reacted to his unjust, ungodly authorities. Certainly, he called out the sins of the religious leaders. Before Pilate, he spoke the truth as to where his authority came from. But Jesus submitted himself to those human, ungodly authorities. He became a slave, a bondservant, and humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. Why? He obeyed this verse. He obeyed what we saw in 2, 11 and 12. To show you God's glory in the gospel. To win you to himself. Why did he receive injustice and abuse and punishment and death? And he willingly, as a lamb to the slaughter, submitted to that. So you could be his own. Do you see? There's a goal. There's something bigger than setting right the kingdoms of this world. Jesus Christ's submission for your shape, sake is to shape and motivate how we submit as his servants in an unjust culture for his glory. Do you see why Peter has left out the other side of the responsibility? Because he says you need to embrace the injustice. That's what it is to be a Christ follower. Jesus endured the shame of the cross instigated by wicked and unjust authorities to bring you to himself. And he'll bring any who will turn to him. Jesus did good all of his life in spite of how often he was belittled, mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed, and finally crucified. The way you respond to your authorities is meant to reflect your understanding of the power of the gospel in your life. Do you see this is a gospel issue? This passage confronts us with our natural tendency to want to be in charge, to resist authority. And Jesus, again, wins our hearts by showing us how he submitted to evil and injustice in this world to glorify his father to be glorified himself through that obedience. So submitting to sinful authorities for God's glory is what followers of Christ do because it's what he did for our salvation. He went before us. His submission throughout his life and death revealed just how supreme, how wise, how sovereign he is. And he's ready to give you grace to do what's very difficult for you to do. When you see the news this week and you're dismayed and you're rightly saying that's not right. God's grace is offered to you to respond in a way that isn't belittling or demeaning. He can help you submit yourself not just in action but in attitude. But you must preach the gospel to yourself. You must remember him who submitted for your sake. Consider Jesus' words in this light as we conclude. Jesus said, you, my people, are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. You will hide that light if you're preoccupied with all the struggles of this world. 
No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Nothing less than God's glory is at stake in your attitude and actions toward your civil authorities. Let's close this morning in prayer. Gracious God in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful even when it calls us to do difficult things. We're grateful that as we work through a book of the Bible, it brings us to subjects that we would rather ignore or put off. Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts, that your word would affect and shape the way that we think, and then it would shape the way that we behave. You've called us to live good works publicly before a watching world that needs Jesus Christ. Help us to be different in our speech, in our online interactions, in our attitudes, in how we think about those in authority over us. Lord, this passage tells us not to be surprised that our authorities will not always do what's right. And yet, Lord, we submit ourselves to them, not because ultimately they're in charge, but because you are. And we know we're living for another world. Help us to recognize that we are free to obey you, that we are exiles and sojourners in this world. And our duty is to live for Christ, our King, and to live in a way that reflects his nature, his gospel, and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.